Hello, Michelle Laurie here, and as promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane, and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio, or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so you know we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian True Crime Live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children. You know, one senior detective called it the worst crime in Australia in my 30 years experience. You know, they just couldn't get a lead. The scientific evidence, the recreations of the bombs, you know, extensive interviews with thousands and thousands of, you know, railway workers, coal miners, etc., just didn't turn up anything. 
Michael Adams from the Forgotten Australia podcast is back with another historical Australian crime. It's the story of the pay car ambush of 1941. And if you don't know what a pay car is or was, then you're not alone. We didn't either, but we have some photos on our Facebook and Instagram for you. It's adorable, but you won't believe what it was used for. Michael will explain, of course, but as you know, what tends to shock us most when he brings us these incredible, bizarre and often brutal true crime stories from Australia's past is how on earth they've been forgotten. Well, at least this time, in the case of the Paycar ambush of 1941, there's a reasonable explanation for that. We'll let Michael explain. It had the, I guess, the bad fortune to happen on the morning of December 8, 1941, Just across the international date line at Hawaii, the Japanese had bombed Pearl Harbour and the Japanese had also invaded Malaya and sunk British ships off Singapore. So for the past two years, it had been a European war. It wasn't really the Second World War until that morning. That morning, Australians woke up to the news on the radio that Britain was at war with Japan. Australia was also in name and would very soon be officially at war. So all of a sudden, Australia, for the first time in its white colonial history, was under direct threat of invasion. And Australia was completely unprepared, regardless of, you know, years worth of warnings. We were really unprepared for a war that was going to be fought on our doorstep. John Curtin makes his announcement to Australia that, you know, this crisis has reached us. We're going to have to do everything we can to survive. Everybody's expected to do their bit. That means, you know, if you're not going to be enlisting, then you need to be carrying out your work to the best of your ability. Men and women of Australia, we are at war with Japan. That has happened because in the first instance, Japanese naval and air forces launched an unprovoked attack on British and United States territory. So that was pretty much what was happening on December 8, 1941. People were going to work, including three men who worked on Paycar 155 on the New South Wales State Railways. So a Paycar is, imagine a a small-scale school bus, like you might see in an American movie, you know, maybe 25 feet long, basically a V8 bus, petrol-powered, Ford engine, 30 horsepower, goes about 40 miles per hour, except its wheels have steel flanges. It's actually on on train tracks. So it, it runs up and down the train lines. And these were used in New South Wales to deliver pay to rail workers. So the New South Wales State Rail employed 42,000 people. Outside the military, it was the biggest employer in Australia. And these mainly men are dispersed all over the place. So to get them their money, they were using these pay cars, pay buses, and they were manned by three people. There was a driver, a guard, and the paymaster. And uh, you know they set off. So on the morning of the 8th of December, as this news is filtering out about, you know, this attack on Pearl Harbor and the Pacific being ablaze because, you know, the fighting's going on. From that moment, the Japanese are on the march and the British and the Americans are doing what they can to stop them. So these guys load up their pay car and they head out southwest of Sydney. They're going to Goulburn and they'll be paying out men along the way at various stations and work sightings. I've just Googled it. They look really vulnerable <laughs> yes, to me. very much so. I mean, they've got big windows. Yep. They, they don't look like armoured cars that we have today. 
they were originally designed lux- sort of you know luxurious passenger vehicles for uh, railway lines where there wasn't demand for full trains and they weren't utilized sufficiently so the government repurposed them as pay cars and the thing was you know in the couple of years before 1941 these vehicles had derailed in one case, a stone on the track had been enough for the vehicle to derail. They actually had kind of a, a, a safety bar across them so that if they derailed, they wouldn't flip. They'd just skid and come to rest upright. And then they could be put back on, on the track. So they were they were vulnerable for sure, like big windows, like you say. And they had a, a safe, a steel safe welded to the chassis. And in this safe on that morning, they had... 11,232 pounds, which in modern dollars is a million bucks. On that morning in the Sydney Morning Herald in the classifieds, there was a Mossman house. Uh, I think it was like nine rooms, four bedrooms, harbour views, the works for 2,700 pounds. So you could buy this Mossman house four times with what was in that safe. So that gives you a better idea of how much it was worth. So this cash was to be delivered to 1,000 workers along the route down to Goulburn, and they were due at Goulburn around about 3.30, and then they'd just turn around and come back. They didn't have to stop on the way back because they would, would have paid out all the money, so they'd be back in time for dinner. So these three guys, they were all in their 50s. They were all married. They all had children, said goodbye to their wives, got onto their pay car, and off they went. They made various stops as they motored out of Sydney. The driver was a chap called George Randall. He'd just turned 50 that year, and he just celebrated his 25th wedding anniversary, and his daughter had just turned 18, and she was soon to get married. The guard was a chap called Alfred Philpot, also in his early 50s. He'd worked for the railways for 35 years, and he had two adult children. And then there was the paymaster, Fred Walker, and he'd been with the railways for nearly 40 years. He was 54. He had three kids. Two of them were still at school, and his oldest boy was in the RAAF in London, learning to fly in bombers that would be used against the Germans. So I'm guessing that morning he was wondering if his son was going to be called back to Australia to defend against the Japanese. These guys are driving the pay car towards Goulburn. At Picton, uh, southwest of Sydney, they were delayed for about 10 minutes because there was a special troop train on the line ahead of them and it was heading south. So this train was filled with diggers who'd you know, been woken up, I'm guessing, in the middle of the night or early morning and told, okay, we've got to mobilise to prepare to you know, deploy wherever you're going to be sent. So the pay car was running 10 minutes behind schedule. It got to a little tiny stop called Yandera at 11.35. And Yandera is just a, like a little one-horse town, sort of 100 miles uh, southwest of Sydney. And they paid out the one station master there. And then their next stop was Yerenbul, which was a couple of miles down the track. So they're 10 minutes behind schedule. They're going around this sort of bush curve up on an embankment and boom, their entire world explodes. There was a driver coming the other way. His name was John Gersback and he was the driver of a locomotive. And what he saw as he was coming north was a massive pall of smoke. And then coming to a stop, he saw the pay car down the embankment completely shattered. And there were two men down there crouching. And he pulled up his locomotive and his guard and his fireman saw these guys stand up. He saw one of them directly. And then these guys bolted. They bolted up the embankment, along the embankment, down the side of the embankment. One of them tumbled and fell, rolled all the way to the bottom over sort of sticks and stones and the rest of it. 
that guy bounced to his feet and these two guys bolted into the bush. They were between 30 to 40. They were described as being quote unquote foreign, which meant sort of, you know, Italian looking, I guess, dark hair. Uh, they were very tanned. They were medium build. Um, they were both wearing khaki shorts and uh, sleeveless shirts. So it, it clearly hadn't just derailed itself. These weren't crew oh, no. members. And when you say that there was smoke, yeah. it wasn't dust. It had been exploded, had it? Yeah. So the the driver and the driver of the locomotive and his crew saw that the railway, the southern side, of the the tracks going south, uh, were twisted, bent into all different. Like you know, they described them as being bent like hairpins. There were two craters in the uh, embankment where the sleepers had been. Sleepers, you know, reduced to matchwood craters, three feet deep. And the pay car had been blown off the tracks. So this is a five-ton vehicle that has been blown a hundred feet along and then down the embankment. So these guys ran down to it. It was covered. It was soaked in petrol. Uh, so it was absolute miracle that it hadn't actually caught on fire. There is cash everywhere. So the crew had paid out about a quarter of the money. They had the procedure was that they would, you know, then get out the next quarter for the next leg of the journey. So there was cash flying through the air everywhere, blowing in the breeze, bundles of money in trees, coins glittering all over the place. These crew ran down to the pay car. 15 yards further down the embankment, they saw the driver, George Randall. He was dead. One of his legs had been blown off. He'd clearly been uh, thrown clear of the wreckage. The noise of the explosion had travelled for miles, so railway workers from all over were running towards the scene. When they got there, they couldn't actually use their oxy-welders to do anything because of all the petrol, so they had to try and get the guys out, but the guys were trapped. So both of them were conscious but unable to speak. Alfred Philpott, when they managed to get wreckage off him, one of his legs was blown off. The driver of the locomotive got back to his locomotive, headed for Yandera, called the cops, called the ambulance, called everybody. The ambulance was on the scene within 20 minutes. A doctor was on his way. They did their best for the men at the scene. They managed to get both of them out of the wreckage. Philpot bled out, died as the doctor arrived at 1.30. Fred Walker was taken to the hospital uh, he had a fractured skull, severe head injuries, both of his legs were broken, and lots of other severe injuries as well. So the CIB police were coming from Sydney, local police were trying to control the scene. There were hundreds of locals on the scene collecting the money. Most I was just it, wondering yeah. if it, I mean, yeah, I was you'd, you'd have a go, wouldn't you? <laughs> most of it was handed in, but they couldn't be sure how much had been taken. So hideously Two dead men's wives were apprised of this disaster. They couldn't believe it. I mean, you know, their husbands had been, you know, working this sort of job for, for years or decades. They'd just gone off to work, you know, on this morning when there's this terrible tragedy across the other side of the Pacific. Mm. And all of a sudden, both of their husbands have been blown up in an explosive ambush as well. I mean, was it sabotage? That was the first question. Was this the first actual blow that the Japanese or Germans had struck on, on Australian soil? That was the initial question, especially as the troop train had passed over that point 10 minutes earlier, a train loaded with soldiers. And when you say that, I mean, it, now it's going to sound ridiculous, especially to younger people who weren't 
conscious or weren't around at the time. But I remember that after September 11. Remember that? We were looking over our shoulders for days, wondering if Australia was was going to be attacked as well. I, li- I lived on the flight path in Stanmore at the mm. time and we would have to pause the TV while a plane went over and that was just kind of an annoyance until that next day when every plane overhead was like, it took on a new meaning for weeks Oh, just afterwards. the sound it of freaky. it, didn't it? The mm. sound of a plane going over was um, enough to give you a fright. It was an awful sound, yeah. The um, London bombings, I was in London yeah. at the time. And, oh, wow. You know, that was really freaky. And then obviously you had like days later the cop shot that poor guy with the backpack. And that was because that was literally they had signs about do not run, do not wear. It was really yeah. tense. So I hadn't thought about that until you said it. Of course, the day after Pearl Harbor, yeah, well, the day of, like they're literally in Sydney, there's hundreds of men enlisting. They're rounding up the Japanese and interning them that very day. People are rushing into stores to buy tape to black out the windows for, you know, a potential air raids. So the, the whole of you know, Australia is on high alert. Coming up on Australian True Crime, more questions and even fewer answers about the identities of the men behind the pay car ambush of 1941. Although the questions do lead to one colourful character who's captured the interest of a few people in the decades since, including Michael Adams. That's after the break. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Michael Adams will be joining us again in the next episode of Australian True Crime to talk about one of the most vile individuals to ever darken the cobbled steps of Pentridge. He discovered this fellow while researching the story about the Paycar ambush of 1941, and we'll start to hear a little bit about this guy shortly. So the police from Sydney and the local cops, they examine the scene. They work out that, you know, the explosives have been placed underneath the railway tracks dug into the ground. 
A cord had gone down the hill to a detonator behind a log. So that's where the bombers had actually hit out. And there was no way they could have set this up within 20 minutes. One cop said they'd used enough to blow up the side of a mountain. I mean, remember, this was a pay car that there had been newspaper articles about them being derailed by as much as a stone on the track. But what they determined was, you know, there was no way they could have planted these explosives, etc., between the time of the troop car passing by and the troop train was unscheduled. The pay car was running to a timetable. They had clearly had the explosives in place when the troop train went over it, which, you know, God forbid it had gone off accidentally, mm. but it made it quite clear that the target was the pay car. So it hadn't been sabotage. They'd wanted the money. Thing was, the safe was still locked, still closed, and still welded to the chassis. So most of the money was safe. All that robbers had potentially gotten was the, you know, two and a half thousand pounds or so that had been loose. And a lot of that clearly was, you know, in the wind. So using this much explosive uh, had not been the greatest strategy. Did it indicate, Michael, the fact that they used so much, did it indicate that these people were well-versed in no. bomb-making or not? Because I was like... Yeah, no, they, they thought not. They thought, you know, these guys were clearly fairly callous, but uh, they didn't really have any idea what they were doing in terms of how much they'd used. Yeah, so they didn't care if they killed anybody. Well, the theory was potentially they'd actually meant to blow up the train tracks before the pay car got there so that it would stop and then they'd use guns to actually hold up the crew. Thing was, though, the crew were all armed with revolvers. So it was quite possible that they actually had intended to blow up the pay car and this is what had resulted. So super callous. So these guys who'd done it had gone up to the pay car. You know, there's one guy lying there dead, two others bleeding out, severely injured, petrol everywhere, cash everywhere, and they'd started scooping up as much money as they could carry. So the police would determine a little bit later, they found two, two metal discs they couldn't explain. So they presumed they'd come from the explosive and they would actually reconstruct the explosive as they believed it had been built. And it was, they were basically improvised explosive devices, kind of like big pipe bombs, huge pipe bombs. So the police would actually circulate that imagery and they talked to engineers, people with lathes, and they tracked down the owner of every lathe in New South Wales to see if they could find out, you know, where these things had been fabricated. They also would find cotton wool on the uh, detonator cord and there was coal dust on it. So they also went to every colliery suspecting that, you know, this had been a place where the gelignite had been obtained. I think they interviewed like six and a half thousand people. Um, so that was all in the future, though. In these initial days, what they had were the descriptions of the guys and, you know, the fact that two men were dead and another one was, you know, terribly, terribly injured in Barrel Hospital. And what was just unimaginably tragic was this guy, Fred Walker, his wife had been on another train heading down that way because the kids were at school in Barrel. So her train had been delayed at Picton as this news came through, and then she had to continue on. The train was diverted onto the other tracks and go past the actual oh, scene. Oh, no. And she, she said she couldn't bear to look out the window, and she went directly to the hospital to her husband's bedside. So the police, you know, issued the description of these guys and the circumstances, but, you know, the Daily Mirror, which had only just started in New South Wales at this time, was in competition with The Sun, the other tabloid, which was an afternoon paper. And, you know, this was news that had happened 
crack of dawn in Pearl Harbor, crack of dawn, they put out, I went to the State Library in New South Wales, and I think I counted 12 editions of the Daily Mirror that day. They were just continually updating. It was almost like having a real-time feed. Isn't that fascinating? I've never known about that. Now, of course, yeah, now they can update a website, you know, constantly. But so back in the day when there was big news, they would just keep pumping out new editions of the paper. Special editions around the clock. So, you know, in a case like this, obviously, for the police to have any chance of success, they need the cooperation of the public. On any other day, this pay car ambush would have been front page news, but it was buried back in the paper. Everybody else is talking about Pearl Harbor and everything else. The police, you know, asked that people be on the lookout for these guys, be on the lookout for men matching this description, acting oddly. It's like, I'm not sure what the definition of acting oddly is on this day, particularly. The description held dark hair, dark eyebrows, dark eyes, very tanned slash sunburnt. The police focused on Italians and you know, Greeks in the area, uh, those who'd been you know, interned or were under suspicion already as, you know, quote unquote, enemy aliens. <laughs> but they also looked at uh, Australian servicemen who were AWOL or unaccounted for on the day because mm. of the khaki shorts and the fact that they were like, you know, tanned, indicated they'd been or sunburned out in the sun a lot. Um, they turned up nothing. Uh, the police and the New South Wales Railways put up a £1,500 reward, which was humongous. They would determine that about £2,500 was unaccounted for. So it had either been stolen by people who attended the scene, or it actually had been destroyed in the blast, or it had been taken by the robbers. So, you know, a combination of all three of those likely. The short version being that the murderers, because that's what they were, hadn't got away with nearly as much as they'd hoped. Sadly, on the the day afterwards, at 4am, Fred Walker, he also died. So it was three for three. So this was a triple murder. Six children, both actual children and, and adults, who are now without their father, and you know, three women who are going to spend the rest of their lives grieving their husbands for this you know, fairly senseless murder. A Mittagong baker said that he'd seen four people in a car, two men answering the description, and two women burning off shortly afterwards in that sort of area. The description of this car was, was put out. This was a really valuable lead. It was a really sort of beat-up old jalopy, so it was quite a distinctive car. But within a few days, someone came forward and said, that was actually my car. I was taking it for a spin, and you know these are the people I was with. So that was sort of you know, a dead end. But another guy at the time came forward to say he'd seen four people, two men, two women, hitchhiking about four or five days earlier. The descriptions of the men matched the descriptions given by the, the railway driver. And these people had become really abusive when he wouldn't give them a lift. So that sort of you know description, these two men, 30 to 40, dark, sort of complexioned, and two women was pretty current. But, you know, it just went nowhere. It just went nowhere. There were 200 cops on the case sort of within a week. They searched as far down as the uh, Victorian border. They thought they might be holed up in a cave in the bush waiting for the heat to die down. But eventually, it just petered out. You know, one senior detective called it the worst crime in Australia in my 30 years experience. But, you know, they just couldn't get a lead. The scientific evidence, the recreations of the bombs, you know, extensive interviews with thousands and thousands of, you know, railway workers, 
coal miners, etc. just didn't turn up anything. And again, just so hard to get any traction with the public because it's a small community. People, someone knows something, you know, it's that old thing. Someone would have seen something, but everyone's so, and rightfully so, understandably, so focused on the war and thinking about, is my son going to have to go to the war and all of that? Am I going to have to go? All of that stuff. It's frightening. It's so terrifying that you just can't get their heads on this other issue, which is like we know for the victims' families, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. Totally. They must well, have I, felt I so forgotten, out. you know. They must yeah. have the the widows and the families must have yeah. felt like so sad and forgotten. It's like no one cares. They had a uh, the formal inquest in October of 1942. Again, good luck getting anyone to care in 1942. Well, that's it. Like usually, um, you know, as you know, an inquest, you know, particularly in these times, you know, yeah. people would actually queue up to get a get a seat. The Berrimer inquest, there wasn't a single member of the public. They heard all the evidence. They had to conclude that the three men had been murdered by persons unknown, and the case was, you know, unsolved to that point. Now, the cops would have had suspects. Um, I actually went to the New South Wales police and uh, paid for them to do a search, and unfortunately, they have no files on this. You know, files over the years were lost or destroyed. It was pretty frustrating because, you know, it was such a big case. The reason that they'd actually started using these pay buses, pay cars, was because of the fear of train robbery. Um, up until 1937, they were taking these pays on ordinary trains. A paymaster with a guard would be sitting in a carriage, but you know that carriage would be connected to passenger carriages, so it would be relatively easy for someone to try and affect a stick-up. So that's why they went for these, you know, under their own power pay buses. In 1930, there'd been the Mudgy Mail Train robbery in the Blue Mountains at Glenbrook. The thieves had gotten onto the train with a revolver, stuck up the guard, and they'd made off with £18,000 in, in cash and, and checks, a fortune. The next year in 1931, there'd been the Canberra Mail robbery, which was basically a guy with £10,000, a, a guard, who put it down on a, a platform at Queanbeyan, turned around, picked up the bag, and when he got to Canberra, found the bags had been switched and his, his bag was full of, like, scraps of paper and rubber. They arrested a crook in these cases. His name was George Morris. And George was found with 7,600 pounds on his farm in Western Sydney. He confessed to having been in on the mail train robberies, both of them. And he actually dobbed in one of his mates, one of his accomplices, Joe Ryan, as being the principal gunman who'd actually assaulted the uh, guard in the Mudgee mail train case. These are back in the days when they were just on the normal passenger trains. Yeah. This guy. So, yeah. Right. So George Morris, uh, so he admits to being, you know, in on both of these robberies, but he turns King's evidence. So he gets a, a free pass. Another one of the guys who was on the mail train robbery, the, the Mudgee one, also a gunman, also fingers this Joe Ryan guy, he also gets a free pass. This Joe Ryan guy is going to wear wear it for both of these jobs while his accomplices walk. Understandably, he absconds before trial. So he turns himself in in 1935. He goes to trial on numerous occasions for both of these jobs. It's either a hung jury or he's acquitted each time because the evidence against him is coming from these scumbags <laughs> who have, you know, actually got form themselves. So this George Morris guy who, you know, had confessed to being involved in both of these mail robberies had also in 1928 been mixed up in a bombing in Melbourne, which had, had wounded 15 people. 
a Greek cafe in Melbourne was blown up. No one died, but this guy was suspected of actually building the bomb. So in 1941, George Morris is living in Sydney. He's running a garage, but he's dabbling in safe cracking and in stolen cars. So he's still a crook. They don't have enough on him. I'm sure he would have been a suspect and they would have interviewed him. Now, there was another guy called Lionel Charles Thomas, a.k.a. Thomas Edward Croft, but he'd been convicted of a violent robbery in Sydney and he was suspected of far worse in Melbourne. And that included a murder in 1934 of a railway ticket master, station master, during a botched robbery. And Lionel Charles Thomas, a.k.a. Thomas Croft, his father was a veteran railway worker. So he knew a lot about rail activities and procedures. Further, Lionel had been released from Pentridge after serving two years for another break and enter, and he'd been released in July of 1941, and he hadn't been heard of since. He'd been in jail prior to that for eight of 10 years, but this guy was all of a sudden nowhere to be found. Lionel would also have been someone they really wanted to talk to. But, you know, as it turned out, they didn't get anywhere, the cops. Then in March of 1944, George Morris, who was just about to face court on a £2,000 safe-cracking charge, was lured out and was gunned down in Sydney. He was shot 12 times by two different gunmen. They really wanted this guy dead, and it was reported that George Morris had been about to talk about who was involved in the Yandera pay car case. I mean, this guy had form. He'd squealed previously, and he was supposedly about to squeal again. The police denied that. They denied there was any connection with Yandera. And his former mate, Joe Ryan, was arrested and would be tried for his murder and would be acquitted. So that case was also a dead end. In 1948, a bushwalker around Yandera found a cave. And inside the cave, there were coin bags, skeleton keys, a rag with blood on it, an envelope with Yandera stamped on it, dated 1941, and a railway detonator. Now, there was also Japanese coins, a 22 caliber bullet, a stamp from 1942. Seven years after the Paykar massacre, it was finally front page. The Daily Mirror's um, headline read, Cave find may give clue to sensational theft, 1941 train explosion. I don't think I've ever seen a, a sensational case previously where it's taken seven years for it to make the front page, but it finally did. And most people would have been like, what happened? I've never heard yeah. of that. They, they had to actually recap it in, the, in this article because most people would have forgotten. However, the police, after a couple of days, said, nah, it's a hoax. So this guy, the bushwalker, he was like a really respected public servant. He was walking his dog. This guy had clearly not perpetrated the hoax himself. And the police said that there was evidence the items had only just been put there. So it's really strange to me that a bushwalker should happen to walk into this cave. His dog had actually run in there and he'd followed his dog in there, find all this stuff that had just happened to have been placed there by pranksters like days earlier. And to what end? To what end, exactly. And then, you know, if you're a prankster, you'd have to actually assume that someone would bother to actually report what could look like a bunch of rubbish. But anyway, the cops said no, it had nothing to do with it. It wasn't actually evidence, which I find pretty hard to believe. So I do think that the cops were kind of just, you know, dismissing it. Maybe it was just too hard basket. In any event, we, you know, the case goes completely quiet again until April 1951. And then April 1951, the police say they knew who did it all along. 
They'd never had enough evidence to charge him, but now they could finally reveal one of the perpetrators of this horrific triple murder, and that was Lionel Charles Thomas. He'd been their number one suspect all along. So that made me wonder, who is Lionel Charles Thomas, and were they right? We'll pick up the sordid story of Lionel Charles Thomas in the next episode of Australian True Crime with our guest Michael Adams from the Forgotten Australia podcast. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week. This has been another Smartfella production in conjunction with the Acast Creator Network. 
Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well. So, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.